If you would take your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9, we will be turning our attention this morning to the, the last story of the book, though it encompasses the rest of it. So chapters 9 and 10, it, it, is, it is where we find out not all is well in Jerusalem and among the people of God. Ezra chapter 9, as an introduction, we'll be considering the first five verses this morning, kind of preparing ourselves then for what's to come in the, in the rest of it. We'll read together the first five verses. Again, beginning in verse 1, Ezra chapter 9. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Its presence can be blatant and yet subtle. It it can be in your face, obviously out of bounds, and yet deceptively attractive. What am I talking about? The dangers of worldliness among God's people. This is something that has been a persistent problem among God's people since the time of God's people. It's not the easiest topic. It's not the easiest one to preach and teach and study ahead of time. It's then not the easiest one to hear. Nonetheless, it is critical because the Bible, from beginning to end, makes it clear this is an ever-present threat to the well-being of God's people as individuals and as a community of faith. I mean, we see its dangers, again, from the very beginning. Consider the story of Abraham and Lot, though at that time he's still called Abram. You may recall this story where 
where Abraham and his nephew Lot have, have, have possessed the same land and their livestock and the keepers of their livestock are fussing and feuding with one another over the resources. So Abraham proposes a deal. He tells Lot, you look either direction. You pick one way you're going to go, and I'll go the opposite. The Bible tells us that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the fertile and rich plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. He chose to move that direction while then Abraham moved into what would later become the fullness of the promised land. The story of Lot, though, is a problem because as we continue to follow him along the way, we, we find that Lot slides further and further away from Abraham and closer and closer to Sodom until we find him right before that well-known story of Sodom's destruction. We find him sitting in the gate of the city, a leader among the people. It's it's one of those early warnings of the subtle dangers of allowing your eyes to determine what you will choose and the path that you will take, an early illustration of the dangers of worldliness. We could look at the story of somebody like King David. I mean, here is a man who is described, as we all know, a man after God's own heart, and yet his own heart seemed to pursue lust, pride, times outright rebellion. And just study the rest of the history of Israel. I mean, while there are bright spots along the way, there are the, the, the few and far between righteous kings who lead the people in revival and into following the law, at least to some degree, the vast majority of the history of Israel, as told in the Old Testament, presents a people who generation after generation succumb to the siren song of the world indulging in all kinds of things, God didn't subtly forbid or kind of ambiguously say you shouldn't do that, but things that God outright in His law again and again and again said, do not do these things, otherwise judgment will come. Of course, it's not just an Old Testament issue. The New Testament has plenty of warnings to us about the dangers and temptations of worldliness. Toward the end of the New Testament period, the last living apostle, somewhere probably in his 80s, the Apostle John, penning his first letter to the church he pastored, the church in Ephesus, gives the warning, do not love the world or the things of the world. Perhaps echoing to some degree some of the language in the prayer we just heard earlier from John 17 and Jesus' prayer for us, that we would be in the world, but not of it. Keep, us in, keep, keep them in the world, but not of the world. We know the Apostle Paul warns about this. He tells us in that great text that perhaps many of you have memorized in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And one of the more interesting statements he makes, it's, it's really quite depressing in his last letter, reflecting on the fact that nearly everybody he knew and worked with and ministered alongside of 
had abandoned him. He talks about a man in particular by the name of Demas, a man who had been there with him at the very beginning, almost in mission and engaged in the work. And he makes this statement. He says, he says Demas has left me because he loved the world. Yeah, this, this is an ever-present threat to the life of the church. James, perhaps in best fashion, chapter 4, verse 4, sums it up. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Again, it's not an easy topic. It's one that's quite heavy. And though there may be times where maybe some of the things that we talk about and what we consider have you know, varying kind of weights to them, there's no doubt, and I'll warn you ahead of time, that for the next few weeks, these are serious matters that get to the very heart of the well-being of a body of believers. Because this issue has not changed over time. It's not like, well, that was a problem in the Old Testament or a problem in the New Testament, but here in the 21st century, it seems like God's church has got it figured out. No more worldliness among us. Now, in fact, just the opposite is true. 2017, a Barna poll, and recognizing, you know, you take polls with a, you know, with a grain of salt, as they say. Nonetheless, there's, there's at least something disconcerting about this suggested that among confessing believers who regularly attend church, only 17% of them had a biblical worldview. 17%. That means that the other 83%, maybe there's some you know, shades of gray along the way and some variation and nuance, but the other 83% in some form or fashion have views, ideas, principles, and then even actions which violate and contradict what the Bible says God's people should be and what they should do. Only 17% holding to a biblical worldview. Again, it is a, it is a constant and ever-present threat to the people of God. This temptation to, to love the world, to be too friendly with the world, to, to value what the world values. And sometimes this, this is ramped up when, when it is suggested to us that, in fact, friendliness with the world is a necessary evangelistic method. We have those in the evangelical world today that will tell us that what we need to do in order to win the world, we need to soften some of our teachings on these things, these things that are clearly no longer in step with 21st century modern man. Just recently, maybe even this past Sunday or the Sunday before, Andy Stanley has once again made his position clear and has said, we need to stop relying on the ideas of 66 books written by superstitious ancient men. It is an ever-present threat to the life of the church. 
worldliness. Now, the church has tried to address this in a number of ways. Early on, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, you had men who fled Rome and all the indulgences of it, some of whom living on top of pillars in the desert. Some fled into caves up in the mountaintop and in fact got up into a cave they could not get down out of in order to just die there, in order to avoid the stain of the world. This, of course, gives rise to monasticism. And though attractive to us at times, right? Let's just dump it all. Let's just leave. Let's, let's just get out, surround ourselves with that which is only about us and, and friendly things and godly things, and let's just, let's just reject the world. We recognize that's not an option. No, the gospel requires us to be in the world. We don't want to be of it. Of course, there are those then taking other extremes. We have... Amish communities, Mennonite communities that, that, that apparently God was at work in technology up until about the mid part of the 1800s. And then after that, you can't have any of it, all right? It's one way to stay disconnected from the world. More fundamentalist approach, not in terms of believing the fundamentals, but that which developed into a kind of legalism, then tried to form Christianity around its boundaries, suggesting that the sure cure against worldliness is uh, you, don't, you don't smoke or drink or dance or play cards or play with dice, and then you'll avoid worldliness altogether, this kind of legalistic approach. Well, so, so, so we recognize these extremes, these ways of doing things that may not be helpful. Nonetheless, we're still left in the same condition. How do we address worldliness among us? In our lives personally, and in the life of the church, what do we do about worldliness? Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what these sermons are going to be about in the weeks to come. It, it's not a question of, is there worldliness or not? Is this going to be a problem that we will face? The question is more, what do we do about it when we see it in our lives? We will not escape it in this life. It will be an ever present threat. So how do we manage it? What are the ways in which we respond to it? This is where I think Ezra chapters 9 and 10, I know you're thinking, wow, pastor, that was a long time to get here. I know it's an introduction to a whole series of messages, all right? So it is a long time to get here, but looking back, I realized it's been a long time since I've preached on worldliness, this kind of a topic. I, th I think it's worth our time. I think it's worth our attention I think it's worth our time and attention because as I've said for some time now, and it's not new to me, I'm not all that deep or profound, the world desperately needs a faithful church. They don't know they need that. They think they need a lot of other things. But the most important thing in the world today is a healthy church committed to the gospel. Number one at the top. You can argue with me, but all you can be wrong, all right? Everything else is going to be two or below. They desperately need a healthy body of believers. So what does it take to be that? Ezra chapters 9 and 10 will give us that because it gives us an illustration of what it looks like when a group of people stepped over the line. Stepped over the line of faithfulness and into the world of loving the world. What we find here in chapter 9 are a group of people 
that rather than follow God and his commands, have taken it upon themselves to violate God's command and to engage in unlawful marriages with the people around them. Now, you're going to have to hold on to this for just a moment. We'll get to it, but I'll, I'll just go ahead and let this cat out of the bag which is really a pretty violent image, I guess, if you think about it. All right, but we'll go ahead and let this cat out of the bag. That, when he forbids them from marrying the people groups around them, this is not an issue of race. It's not a matter of ethnicity. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of religion, in essence. We'll flesh that out. But this is the problem. They've started to intermarry with the people groups around them, and this, has, this then is the, the foot in the door to ever-increasing forms of worldliness, of adopting ways, practices, and values of the world around them. So, so here's what I want to do before we move on. I just want to give a quick definition here of worldliness just so we're operating with the same idea, all right? You may agree or disagree with my definition. Feel free to do so. I think this is pretty accurate. Maybe nuances and shades you would distinguish here. Worldliness, I would contend, is adopting of values, principles, goals, and actions which fail to conform to God's expectations for his people. To put it maybe in a, in, in a, in a simpler way, to be worldly is to adopt and act on a worldview inconsistent with a biblical one. So by worldliness, we mean something much bigger and broader than just somebody engaging in a specific particular kind of sin or set or list of sins. It begins in the mind. It begins with the worldview. And so, worldliness is fundamentally about a worldview, a way of looking at the world around you determining what matters most, how you're going to act in that world that violates a biblical standard. This is what the folks in Jerusalem are guilty of doing. They have, they have violated this. They have formed for themselves a way of looking at the, how they're going to relate to the world around them that violates God's Word. So here's what we're going to do. Over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to look at four steps here to dealing with worldliness among God's people. We'll look at the first one this morning. And over the subsequent weeks, we'll work through the rest uh, as, as we get through chapter 9 and then into chapter 10. So number one, there's actually two points you can put in here, because I like both words, but I wasn't going to separate them out and preach two different points. I could have made five steps, all right, but I've made four. So, so the two different words, conviction and contrition. I think the first step in dealing with worldliness is, is what, what I would call this response, a response of both conviction and contrition, meaning this conviction over what I've done or what I believe or how I'm relating to the world around me, being convicted that it in fact violates God's commands, it violates a biblical worldview, and then being contrite. Genuine grief and sorrow being expressed as a result of sinful activity. I, I think this is where it begins with Ezra and these exiles. So notice how the story continues. So chapter 9, verse 1, turn your attention there once again. 
It gives us a time marker. So it's a transitioning out of chapter 8 into chapter 9, the final story to be told. And it says, when these things were done. So, so just as a note about that, what is that a reference to? Well, that's a reference to chapter 8. Now, we'll go ahead and tell you, from best estimate, from what chapter 10 seems to imply, the time between chapter 8 and chapter 9 is about four months. Now, some may think that and think, you mean it took Ezra four months before he was told or realized that some of those people in Jerusalem are intermarrying with the pagan groups around them? So I I don't think that's what's happening. I I think instead, here's what's going on for those four months. One, the exiles in Ezra get into Jerusalem. They set up up their houses. Uh, They're there for three days. They then take all of the material items that they had traveled with to the temple. They engage in appropriate sacrifices, uh, a sin offering for one, and then committing themselves unto the Lord. And then chapter 8 ends by saying in verse 36, and they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people in the house of God. So as soon as he gets in town, Ezra establishes the people in the city, gets the goods to the priest and the Levites at the temple. They begin all of the activities they're supposed to begin. And then I believe Ezra goes on a leadership tour, all right? He goes around to the regional governors and satraps because he's got a letter from the king stating they're allowed to be there, they're allowed to continue the sacrifices, and remember what that letter said? We looked at it for a long time. Remember what that letter said? If we need any money, you're going to have to give it to us. That's my summation, all right? It doesn't literally say that, but that's what it means. From the king saying, all right, you're, you're going to need to support this work. So I think for the next four months, that's what Ezra's doing. As scribe, as ambassador on behalf of the king and the Jewish people, this, this is what he's doing. So when these things are done, all right, when all of those things are done, here's what happens. The leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priest and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians. Why that has to break the pattern, I don't know. And the Amorites. He could have put Egyptians at the end, and that would make my mind feel better. Some of you know what I mean, right? Why did we break the back end alliteration here, right? Just put Egyptian at the end. You're a scribe. Anyway, he doesn't. That doesn't have anything to do with the text, all right? It's just one of those things that's, that stick in my mind as I read it. You get all of these other nation groups, people groups surrounding them. So the first thing these leaders tell Ezra, this is what's important. He's going to give the specific issue of marriage in just a minute, but the real problem is they have not separated themselves. The language of separation here has the ring of holiness. This is the language of holiness. This is what it means. Holiness, as we even talked about this last week, is about being separated unto God's purposes. And so that's the language that's in mind here. Here's what the folks in Jerusalem have been doing. They've been intermingling. They've not set themselves apart. 
They've not distinguished themselves. The implication that's being made here is they are adopting practices and values that are consistent with all of these ites and the Egyptians, all right? With all these other people groups that are around them. Now, here's what's interesting. There are some of those people groups that are no longer active in the region. Instead, what these leaders are doing, they are quoting from, they're quoting, they're, they're, they're taking their direction from Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy had specifically labeled each and every one of these communities, these regions, these people groups, as those to be avoided. And God had given very clear instruction to Joshua, when you get into the land, drive every single one of them out. In fact, some of his language was even harsher. Execute. Now, don't get lost in that. The problems maybe that brings up in your mind about God's commands to do these things, but God called on Israel the Jews under Joshua to cleanse the land. Guess what they didn't do? They didn't cleanse the land. So think about that. The beginning story of God's people in the promised land, Joshua going into the promised land with this command of God to cleanse it, to drive out all of these people, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Jebusites, whatever ite you could think of, drive them all out, kill them, execute them before God, Whatever the case may be, they are not to remain in the land. This is God's land. God's given it to you. It's your land. Drive them out. They don't do it. The beginning story of God's people in the promised land, and here we are, the last story of God's people in the promised land. And what are they still doing? Mingling with the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the the Amorites, the Ammonites, all of these people, and notice specifically what it says. The problem is not with their nationality. I cannot emphasize this enough. It does not deride the people because they are engaging with these nations. It says they've not separated themselves with respect to their abominations. In in other words, God is taking them to task. The people are, are... you know, saying this to Ezra, what, the way they violated this thing is they're engaging in their practices. Idolatrous worship, ungodly, rebellious kinds of behavior that, that aren't just skewed a little bit from God's word, but antithetical to God's word. This is what they failed to do. They have failed to separate themselves. Again, this is the fundamental language of what it means to be a holy people. This, by the way, is not uncommon. It's even repeated in the New Testament Peter quotes this, come out from among them and be holy. Now understand though what, what, is, what God's not saying here. God's not saying that they are to create their own little commune, all right, and to, he's not, this is not practicing shunning. He's not saying they can't have relationships with these other nations, they have to. They're there, they're in the land, done deal. The issue is not having relationships. In fact, I would argue God would want them to be in relationship to some degree with these pagan nations as a witness to the glory and righteousness of God. I believe God always intended for his people to be evangelistic, 
even in the Old Testament. He expected them to be a blessing to the nations. Rather than adopting their practices, they should have been a bright, shining light. The city of God, Jerusalem, should have been Zion, right? This should have been reflecting God's glory. The people should have resonated with a love for God, with a love for others, with a commitment to God's word. But they didn't. So so the issue is not interacting with them. We have to do that, and we're called by God to do just that. Instead, what are they doing? They've not separated themselves from their abominations. I'm telling you, this is what continues to happen in the quote-unquote evangelical world. It's becoming more and more prevalent and being pressed upon us even as a body of believers. It is suggested that the way you and I will reach the world is by jettisoning some of the stuff that's in the Bible. We need to stop believing in old-fashioned ancient views of sexuality, of gender, of marriage. No, no, that modern man is beyond that. And what we're being told, we're being told by people who at one time I might have even trusted that we need to fudge a little bit here in order to get a seat at the table. If that's what it takes to get a seat at the table, you can give my seat to somebody else. I'm not interested. Because we're not going to do that, right? That's not, in fact, I would suggest this. Any compromise on God's truth is an unloving act toward an unbelieving world. I don't get it. There's been so much talk over these last couple of years about loving our neighbor. And what's fascinating to me is one of the best ways I can love my unbelieving neighbor is by being clear on the truth of God's word instead of submitting to something else. No, no, God doesn't say that we need to remove ourselves from them. He says we, can, we are to be separated from their abominations. He's very clear. The obligation to us is that we would recognize among us the ways in which we might have not separated ourselves from the abominations of the world around us. Now, here's, here's, what, here's what he's going to do next. So now, now, verse 2, here's what he learns. For they have taken some of their daughters as, as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So, the specific way in which they've not separated from themselves, themselves from these, these people groups, they've intermarried. Again, I cannot emphasize this enough. This is not, this is not an issue of race. It's not even under concern here. The concern is that God's people in marrying these other people groups, people groups who, by the way, were identified far more by their religious convictions than by any other kind of racial identity we might create today. This was the problem. To marry into the Canaanites, to marry into the Hittites or the Hivites or the Amorites was to marry into their perverted forms of worship and following of other gods. It never worked in the history of Israel that they intermarried with these other nations and those other nations became more Jewish and less pagan. Do you know what only ever happened? Israel only ever became less Old Testament God-fearing and more pagan. That's what happened. This is what he's forbidding. This, by the way, is why the New Testament follows up with this idea and tells us not to be unequally yoked. What he means is... 
There should not be an unequal connection. There shouldn't be a depth and intimacy of relationship in a marriage relationship in particular is what he has in mind between an unbeliever and believer. You sh- God's people shouldn't marry unbelievers. Now, listen, when I say that some already, you've got in your mind because you've done this or you are the unbeliever that married a believer. I- I'm not making a wholesale declaration that then you are out of God's will. God in his grace has saved people in this context. What I'm suggesting though is I'm not gonna just disregard the New Testament It's very clearly, very clearly commands, do not be unequally yoked because there's a far better chance that what will happen to the believer is he or she will become more unbeliever-ish, all right, than the unbeliever to become believer-ish. I know that's real theological, okay, but that's the best way I know how to put it. Okay, so this, this is what he's forbidding here. This is what God is forbidding, that this is, this, the result is, is that there, there is going to be this, this mixing of faith. And that is to be resoundly rejected. And notice what the real problem is. It's happening among the priests and the Levites and the peoples and foremost among the leaders. People at the top of the food chain. People at the highest levels of society. It's, it's so pervasive. It's happening among everybody else, but even the people up here at the top. So, so this is not just a small issue. This is not a minor thing. This seems to be across the board. And you can tell how serious Ezra thinks this is because in verse 3 it says, So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, and sat down astonished. I'm not encouraging you to do this, all right? We don't want to pull a Martin Luther here and spend six or eight hours in confession, so much so that the priest we confess to moves us to a different job, all right? And I'm not talking about, you know, you know flogging yourself and these kind of things, okay? But I do think we should appreciate how seriously, and notice this, he does this in response to what? To his sin? Nope. People he's living among. Ezra's taking it upon himself. A type of guilt by association. I mean, yes, he's astonished at these things, but he's also broken by the sin among his people. I mean, imagine if we took sin that seriously. This is serious. I mean, this is a a reflection of just how deeply embedded is the pain. this This is a similar kind of thing, by the way, they would do in reaction to a death. In very many ways, that's what he's concerned with, that he's seeing the death of his people. And so, after sitting down, and the word astonished means like perplexed, dumbfounded. It, it is, it is that, that ultimate sensation of how in the world do we get here? How is this even possible? How could this possibly be true? But then notice what happens in verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me. That is a profound statement because this now is getting us closer to kind of drawing this to a final concluding point for this morning. That is, what is the means by which they come to experience conviction and contrition? It is not simply because of Ezra's response or Ezra's own words. It is trembling at what? The Word of God. They tremble at the Word of God. And in other words, they have a real fear of God because God's standards have been violated. 
I would contend, by the way, that those who are doing this are probably the exiles who, are, who came with him, who came with Ezra, as well as maybe the few still in the land that have not been practicing these things. Because it's only those who trembled at the words of God that assembled to him. So here he is, he, he's, he's expressed sorrow, sits down, and people begin gathering around him. Because of the transgression of those who'd been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. It's an interesting phrase. The sins that are among the people who were once captive. Because in this is, is, a, is a loaded kind of idea. He is saying, these are the very people that at one time had been exiled, but God had saved them. God had rescued them. God had brought them back. They were now the people of God again. They had a temple of God. They had the law of God. They had the priests of God. They had the Levites of God. They had the rulers of God. They had everything in place. They had every single resource necessary in order to live in the fullness of what God and his covenant commanded from his people. But they weren't doing it. They abandoned it for the sake of their own pleasure. See, this is the essence of worldliness, to adopt values and principles and even ways of acting that are contrary to the Word of God. They can be blatant and they can be subtle, but we have to manage it. And how is, how is it that we begin? We begin by doing a deep dive in submission to God's Word and asking ourselves, are there expressions and commitments in my life that are consistent with not separating myself from the pattern of this world? It's a hard question, but I would implore you to ask it. Because the truth is there could be any number of ways we might see this manifesting in our own lives, personally and even as a church. It is absolutely essential that we... Seek those sources that will bring us under conviction and unto contrition for the examples of worldliness that may be among us. I mean, obviously, there are the big things. We can think of the very clear ways in which we might engage in, in perhaps a violation of God's ethics in terms of sexuality, or the ways in which we might violate it in terms of materialism and, and other clear things that God forbids, lying, coveting, anger, these kinds of things, we see, we see these big blocks that we know, yes, those are indicative of, of worldliness and values that it seems like many in this world possess. How about some of the smaller things? How about the way you treat other people, especially brothers and sisters in Christ? How about the degree to which you consume the things of this world? How about the ways in which you might give too much value to the things of this world, to possessions or success or popularity or even your earthly relationships? Now, there can be really subtle ways we engage in worldliness. But I would ask us to begin this process as we go through this chapter, these, these final two chapters, this final story of Ezra, and we ask ourselves, what, to what degree are we manifesting worldliness in our lives as individuals and as a church? Because to be sure, Jesus Christ did not die on a cross and he was not raised from the dead so that you and I could just barely be Christians in this world. Now, I, I'm not saying that you've got to live an obedient life so that you earn God's grace, so that you earn 
the right to be called a Christian, I wouldn't contend any of that. What I'm in fact suggesting is that this very process of responding to worldliness in our lives, beginning with conviction and contrition, is actually taking advantage of God's grace, a grace that saves us forever. That's certain. If I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, that's a done deal. I belong to Him now and forevermore. And I need to avail myself then of the grace of God that continues to be given to me that I might walk in obedience and faith and in holiness before Him. So will I avail myself of God's grace and deal seriously with worldliness in my life or in the life of the church? How will you respond to this? Will you submit to the Word of God? Will you submit to the Spirit of God? Will you commit to these things that you you might be willing to hear how God by His Word would bring out what is in you that needs to be removed, ways in which you've not separated yourself? I would encourage you this morning as, as we continue to sing, and we sing a perfect song for this, I Surrender All. Is that indeed the case? I think this every time we sing this song. I've sung this song especially for the last several years. This is not a song to sing flippantly, even though you know it well if you've been in church. The words that say, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. Is that true? Do you surrender all to him? Have you you given of your life and all that you value most unto him? I would encourage you to do that. Of course, I would also make an appeal to anybody here who does not know Christ as Savior. Know that this is where this begins, that you would trust in Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, that you would confess that you are a sinner and that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead as the only means by which you could be made right with God. Avail yourself of God's mercy in Christ. How will you respond then to the work of the gospel in you? Unto salvation and unto sanctification, that you might continue to be obedient in a lost and dark world. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And then we will sing together. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your people and we thank you for the opportunity to be under your word. And as your people, we do confess the ways in which we have allowed the principles and values of this world to at times slip into our own mind and hearts as individuals, as a church. And we pray, God, that you by your spirit and by your word would draw out of us the ways in which we are doing that, that we might be convicted of our sin, exhibit true contrition, a true sorrow and grief over the presence of sin in our lives that we might then walk in holiness before you to be faithful not only before you but before the world that is watching that they might see Christ in us. I pray God that you would continue to bring this word to bear on our lives so that it might be used of you and by your spirit to make us like Christ so that you are glorified by your people. That's in Christ's name we pray, amen.